good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. We're, we're really happy that you could join us. It's a, kind of a rainy, gray day, and this is the best place to be because we're going to have a, an interesting afternoon here. Uh, I, I want to say a, just a real sincere thank you to Admiral Thad Allen. He's uh, uh, a real personal hero, and uh, there are a couple of times when, you know, it's like, like that old image, you know, where the you know, you're besieged and there are, you know, enemies all around and all of a sudden the cavalry shows up. And that was a couple of times that Alan came in and just when we needed him. And uh, we'll hear more about that that today. I want to say a special thanks. We've, uh, this is a new series for us that we've, we're doing jointly with the Stephenson Disaster Management Institute down at LSU. And uh, Colonel, thank you very much. Uh, I just, Colonel Joseph Booth is the director and he gave a a very distinguished uh, full life of service uh, as a police officer in Louisiana and now is serving in a very new and important way and we're we're very we're grateful to have this opportunity to partner with you thanks Joy and uh, the Pennington Foundation down in Baton Rouge is making possible this opportunity to have this forum with everyone here and I haven't let Maury, uh, left I haven't met Lori Berkman is she Lori you're here thank you thank you very much for what you're doing it's really really great us guys were sitting in the back wondering where the hell you were I mean that was our fault you wouldn't have wanted to have joined us anyway but thank you Lori we're delighted to have a chance to to be working with you here. Uh, Ozzy's going to really introduce the Admiral I'd just like to say one thing if I may and that is you know it's something quite unique when we have uh, a national level crisis because the most important question we have to deal with is who is authoritative to reassure people at a time when they're so frightened about their own safety I mean that's the central question and you know I was over at DOD and of course us DOD types we always think well god they want us well wrong you know they don't want us you know because uh, the public is a little worried about us. You know, we go ramming around. We got our own way of talking to each other. We, got, you know, we call it doctrine. That scares the heck out of everybody when we start talking about doctrine. We, so we, we come in and we kind of think we know what's going on and we want to take over. And, of course, we don't know what's going on and we scare everybody in the process. Thankfully, there is an institution, a federal institution, that is perfect for this, and it's the United States Coast Guard. Now, the United States Coast Guard has all of the advantages of a military organization, the command structure, the predictability, the sense of duty and discipline and honor, all of that's in place. But it's an institution that is so widely accepted because it comes out of America's heartland. It is organic to American citizenry. And it touches citizens every day in a very direct way. And so it is a unique institution that we need at Fort Which is why, Joey, it was so wise of you to say, let's start. Let's start with that, Al. Let's start with a discussion about the role the Coast Guard played. You know, people don't know this is an institution that, frankly, kept alive the military at a time when the United States political landscape said, we don't need a military. You know, this is after we overthrew the worthless Brits, you know, got rid of them, and, you know, with the secret help of the French, you know, we don't say that as loud. And, of course, then we said, well, why do we need a military? You know, the only thing that really kept our naval forces alive was it was called the Revenue Cutter. Revenue Marines. Revenue Marines, you know, and it was became, <laughs> we needed cash back then more than anything. And so we called on the Coast Guard to give us kind of staying power as a nation. And the Coast Guard has just been a fabulous institution. And, of course, it, under uh, Admiral Allen's tenure and leadership, it got bigger and better and more important than ever. So, I'm, Thad, thank you for everything you did for this country. It really makes me proud to know you. Let me, Ozzy, now that I've stolen your thunder, you give the introduction. Let's get this thing going. No, this is, uh, this is what makes my job so hard is always following uh, John Hamry. I'm not sure what I should say in uh, response to those remarks. But uh, I will do more of the administrative uh, of details. One of the things, uh, I've been at CSI a little over a year now, and one of the things that I find so enjoyable about working here is a collaboration between our programs. Uh, and I'm the director of the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Program, but we're actually doing this, uh, and it's kicking off 
our, our event, our series on uh, disaster uh, management emergency response. Again, thanks to LSU and uh, the Pennington Foundation. And we're going to explore some topics through the coming year here. Uh, this is a kickoff event. That's why we have such a you know, distinguished individual such as uh, Admiral Allen. And some of the events that we're looking forward in the future are leadership uh, during time of crisis, the role of philanthropy, and whatnot. But it's important to note that because we've got such a distinguished speaker here, this is actually a co-sponsored event with our energy program as well. Uh, our energy program had a very successful series on the impacts of the Gulf oil spill, um, and this is another event in that series. So I appreciate the opportunity to work with my colleagues from the energy program. Um, on to Ad Admiral Allen. I mean, everyone knows him, so I won't waste too much time on this. He, we are fortunate. He just retired from the Coast Guard. Did you finally get your vacation? Still working on <laughs> <laughs> He's now a senior fellow at the Rand Corporation. I think that's funny because I'm a senior fellow. Clearly, we're in the same realm. Um, <laughs> but fewer, fewer, um, fewer better to speak on this type of event, obviously, than Admiral Allen. You know, 39-year career. Um, after September 11th, uh, he actually was in charge of the Atlantic Area Forces. Um, and then from there, again, he just had a very distinguished career, and he saw U.S. government responses and recovery operations and aftermaths of Katrina and Rita. And, of course, you know, why we're all here to mostly talk about um, today is his role as a national incident commander during Deepwater to Robert Horizon. Um, so I'm not going to say anything else. I am going to moderate questions and answers afterwards, and those of you that know me, it will be questions and answers and not statements and answers. Um, so um, we'll do that after Alan, uh, after Alan does his remarks. So, Admiral, welcome. Thanks, Ozzy. Thanks, John. <clears throat> he went somewhere. Oh, he's in the back there. Senator, great to see you. Uh, Senator Warner's here with us today as well. Thank you. Great leader. <clears throat> I uh, thought the best use of the time tonight might be to uh, start out with some overarching themes that uh, <clears throat> I have developed in my own mind uh, leading through a couple of incidents that I've been involved in, not only Katrina and Rita, but actually the response to Haiti earlier this year uh, in January and the oil spill itself. I will tell you right now there is a joint investigation going underway between uh, the Department of Interior and Homeland Security with the Coast Guard uh, being involved in that. Uh, that will play itself out. There's also a commission. Uh, I'm not going to dwell a lot on the details associated with that. I'd like to pull out some general points and talk to you about some challenges we face in government. Uh, regarding governance writ large and then how we actually deal when we have a crisis uh, going on in this country. And I think it's salient. There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of discussion here at CSIS over the last few years about uh, should we do some kind of a legislative package like Goldwater Nichols for the interagency? Uh, what happens beyond Goldwater Nichols? And I think every time we talk about that, if you're not in the military and you hear Goldwater Nichols, uh, the antibodies kick in. <laughs> And it starts a little bit of bureaucratic organ rejection. I'd like to come at this uh, conversation a little differently tonight and talk to you about what we're actually experiencing out there, the challenges we're actually uh, facing, what we have to do when one of these crises arise, and why we need planning and coordination across the interagency outside the Department of Defense for non-Title 10 operations. And it makes the argument on its own. It's not like you're trying to replicate something that's going on in the Department of Defense. You're trying to organize and run this government the best way you can when you're confronting a crisis when government needs to work uh, better than it is right now. So uh, that's kind of the, if I would give you an overarching theme, it is that. <clears throat> and I'd like to talk about a couple of things that transpired, not only uh, in New Orleans, but as I said, in, in Port-au-Prince and then the BP spill. But if I could take you back just for a, uh, a little while uh, to 2005 and the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And just to let you know, I'll set the timeline of, and how I got involved in this. Uh, the storm came ashore on Monday, the 29th of August. Uh, I was asked to go down on Labor Day, which was the following Monday, the 5th of August. At that point, one week had elapsed. Uh, we had had the meltdown in the Superdome. We had the issue with the convention center and a host of problems that were going on down there. I got a call from Secretary Chertoff mid-morning, and I uh, was in Baton Rouge that night, and I flew into uh, New Orleans on the morning of the 6th of September. I thought I was going down to assist Mike Brown as a deputy principal federal official in a hurricane response. Uh, it was clear to me, uh, flying into New Orleans on the morning of the 6th of September, that we were not dealing with a hurricane. And I say that because I think we need to understand when one of these crises is unfolding, we have to get better at trying to define what the problem is, 
classify the mission, if you will, or the assignment, who is best to do it, what is the lead-follow relationship we need to have, and lay those parameters out so we know the objectives we're trying to achieve in government, not only the objectives we're trying to achieve, but exit criteria so we know when it's done and there's a basis to move from immediate response to long-term recovery, which is a continuing challenge for us as well, not only in hurricane response, but in Haiti, but the oil spill as well. We go in and we throw our response forces out, but that transition, and it's the same problem we have in military operations when you move through the phases, and I think we need to deal with that too. But when I flew in over the city of New Orleans and it was completely uh, quiet, filled with water, uh, helicopters are still buzzing around the rooftops, uh, I decided that uh, we were dealing with something that was far beyond a hurricane. If the levees are not breached, if the flood walls in the 17th Street Canal and London Avenue Canal are not breached and New Orleans stays intact, ground zero of Hurricane Katrina was Waveland and Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, where we had about 25 feet of water come in and just basically wipe those uh, towns off the uh, face of the earth. What I don't think we understood at the time, and I did not understand until I set foot on New Orleans, was when the levees were breached, it became a different problem. And I'm a big believer, there's a, there's a professor up at MIT named Peter Sange, he wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline, and he talks about senior managers needing to develop mental models about what it is you're dealing with. Over the first 24 hours in New Orleans, especially after my conversations with uh, General Russ Honore and some other folks down there, I decided that what we were dealing with was the equivalent of a weapon of mass effect that had been used on the city of New Orleans without criminality. Now let me deconstruct that for you because it's really important. I say weapon of mass effect because what had happened, the virtual effect of the flooding of the city was that they lost continuity of government in the city of New Orleans. And I'm not trying to be harsh here, and, but they did not have decapitation, okay? I'm using military doctrinal terms now. In other words, you had standing leadership, but the command and control structure was not there. So we had been flowing forces into New Orleans for over a week. Urban search and rescue teams, the local police were there, Coast Guard was there but they in effect were self-deployed. Uh, and if you ask them who the, what the reporting chain was, you'd have a real problem finding that out. So while we were responding to the disaster and the emergency declarations and flowing the forces in, uh, there was no capability to organize them and apply them to mission effect. Once I understood that, it was a lot easier to move and decide what we needed to do. The second thing is, in that week leading up to my uh, deployment down there, there was talk all over government about whether or not we should invoke the Insurrection Act or waive posse comitatus. And in the end, the legal reviews and the discussions that took place indicated that there was no premise to do that. There was no legal case for federal preemption because you had standing governments down there even though they had lost continuity of government. That's the key here, okay? So my challenge then, once, once that was the legal construct, was to figure out how you can bring effect to the resources that were there without violating those legal premises. And you, it may sound complicated, but once you get the problem down, you can at least deconstruct it and it gets a little easier. Uh, I sat down with Russ Honore and we, we did a couple of things. First of all, we agreed to support each other. There'd be no fighting in public and we were going to be a team. And, uh, you know, he's an extraordinary individual. And if you've got some time, we want to go to a bar, I can tell Russ Honore stories. So. <laughs> uh, the real problem was to organize everything that was there and not presume the legal prerogatives of the state and local government, specifically law enforcement officials that had the authority to go house to house, make decisions on to enter and so forth. Uh, and then we had to figure out how to allocate the forces that Russ had to his disposal. And then a real key issue, uh, the National Guard called up by Louisiana under Title 32 and how to create what is going to be a major theme I will talk about, and that's unity of effort. Let me here compare and contrast unity of effort versus unity of command. When you go into the military, your first day on the job, boot camp, academy, OCS, wherever you go, you have to learn and recite your chain of command from you to the president. Everybody has to do it. It's one of the basic features of indoctrination. I don't know what would happen if I had gone out during Katrina, the oil spill, or anything else to somebody from EPA or FEMA or NOAA and said, please describe your chain of command to the president. And that's not a value judgment. It's because we have a collection of, a, of a departments with authorities and jurisdictions that are particular to their legislative mandates that they're trying to execute. So what we finally did in New Orleans was we divided the city into sectors. And in each sector, we assigned one of Russ Honore's components. Uh, the 82nd Airborne got the Central Business District. Uh, Secretary Warner is a former Marine, so I would tell you uh, 
the Lower Ninth Ward in St. Bernard Parish got what I call the hat trick, the triple whammy. They got the original storm surge. They got the back flooding when the levees failed, and then there was a Murphy Oil refinery where uh, we had a million gallons of crude oil got slimed the city. It was so bad down there, we gave it to the Marines. <laughs> and then we gave another sector to the National Guard so they could maintain unity of command within the National Guard. And then we kind of had to dot a line. We're all going to have a gentleman's agreement. We're not going to fight about how we did this. We had a coordinated meeting every day. And we did this, believe it or not, in, inside the incident command system. And then Russ Honore would actually execute his portion through the Joint Operational Planning and Execution System, which comes to a key point. If you're going to do this in the future uh, and you're going to be effective, you've got to be bureaucratically multilingual. And as John was saying earlier, I think that is a key uh, attribute and characteristic of the Coast Guard myself. So what we did was we did three sweeps of the city. We did what we called a hasty sweep, a primary sweep, and a secondary sweep. We take 20 or 30 people with high-water vehicles or rubber boats supporting two or three local officers, and they would make the decision on whether or not to go into a house based on the height to the water. And as you saw, we went through and we marked every house. You saw the markings we placed on them. And as the water came down, we did three sweeps of the city. We found more survivors. Had to deal with a very difficult issue of, uh, of remains recovery as well. But inside, we had an incident command system that was being supported by a joint task force commander. But we created unity of effort across the federal government in support of a local government that had lost continuity of government, if you, if you can kind of keep that in your mind. I'm not going to dwell a lot on there because I'm a fast forward to Haiti now. Okay. Um, and as you know, uh, because we were patrolling the Windward Pass and some other areas there, Coast Guard cutters were the first on scene into Port-au-Prince uh, the morning following the earthquake. Our people went ashore and were uh, actually astounded by the devastation. It was just uh, uh, incredible. At the meetings at the White House on how to move forward and how to best have the U.S. government help Haiti, there was a lot of talk about how to organize it and what should we do. And I had a really long conversation one evening with Secretary Napolitano, who wanted to help and bring the uh, uh, core competencies we'd been developed, the lessons learned from Katrina that were embedded now in FEMA through uh, Craig Fugate, who was working with Rajiv Shah over at USAID. How can we do this? And I proposed to her that we create that same concept that we had in New Orleans and we export it to Haiti. Because what was similar between New Orleans and Haiti was uh, we had a loss of continuity of government without decapitation, but in this case it was a sovereign government and there was not a principal federal official, it was a U.S. ambassador representing the United States and we also had a U.N. mission on the ground in Haiti. And what I proposed and Craig Fugate and I both agreed was we took a team, we took a senior executive from FEMA and we took a Coast Guard one-star admiral, put them together, took the same command and control trailers and equipment satellite-based equipment that we had, and we basically took that to Port-au-Prince and put it on the grounds of the U.S. Embassy. And then they became the linking pin with the ambassador with Joint Task Force Haiti. It was headed by Lieutenant General Keene under U.S. Southern Command. There are very many similarities about how we ultimately evolved in New Orleans and exactly what we exported and did on the ground in Haiti. The big difference... Uh, between New Orleans and Haiti, in my view, was the additional fact that we took control of the airspace. And as you know, in the first 24 hours after the earthquake, I think we had either 12 or 13 landings, if we had that many. At the height of the uh, airlift that moved in and out of Haiti, uh, under the supervision of the 1st Air Force, U.S. Southern Command Transcom, working together, in addition to a FEMA team that was over at USAID helping them prioritize the landing slots, I think we reached our height uh, during that operation of 160 landings in one day. So we're out there, we're demonstrating how to achieve effects. We're doing it in an interagency, in this case, international coalition setting. And we're, being, we're giving effect to the resources that are being provided. Okay. If I could fast forward then to the oil spill. And I'm going to talk about this in, in terms of strategy and how you think about these problems going in. Uh, you all know the, the, uh, the rig exploded on the 20th of April. Uh, two days later on the 22nd of April, three days later, excuse me, uh, the rig sunk. Uh, the rig sunk on Earth Day. The rig sunk while there were a number of NGOs in the White House meeting with the President celebrating Earth Day. And two hours later, I was in the Oval Office on Earth Day uh, with the Cabinet briefing the President on what had transpired and what was going forward. And let me make it abundantly clear to everybody, there was no doubt in anybody's mind we were dealing with a catastrophic event from the start. 
Nobody was lowballing any estimates. Everybody knew this was serious. And everything we had was being moved that direction. Now, ultimately, the requirements for this spill, which spread from uh, Port St. Joe, Florida, to South Central Louisiana, ultimately dwarfed even the requirements that were put forth in the response plan that BP had uh, created. But that was all moving. Getting back to this notion of mental models and how you actually look at the problem, what it is you're trying to solve, uh, it became very apparent this was not just an oil spill, just like Katrina was not just a hurricane in New Orleans. We were dealing with probably three different domains that had to be addressed and dealt with separately. The first one was a containment of oil and well control, stop the oil at the source. The second was get to as much oil as you can while it was still together on the surface offshore and deal with it there. And the third was, of course, to defend the... Uh, uh, the beaches and the marshes of Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, and Texas as necessary. This created three different sets of mission assignments, if you will, they're all linked together, the most critical being control the well. At this point, uh, the real difference in uh, Katrina and Haiti and the oil spill began, began to emerge, at least in my mind, as a National Incident Commander, and that was that we had made a bunch of determinations after the Exxon Valdez that were embodied in the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 that lays out the response doctrine for this country. The legal premises and oil spill response doctrine are fundamentally different than the disaster response under the Stafford Act, and they were intended to be by public policy. And if I can just go through a couple of the basic features, because these were not well known going in, and I think that was one of our problems. If it's a natural disaster, uh, tornado, wildfire, whatever, uh, if, if the resources exceed the local responders' requirements, they will make a request to the government, and there will be an emergency or disaster declaration, and based on that disaster declaration, they have access to the disaster uh, relief fund, and the resources flow. They are put in the hands of the local government, and they execute the response. Now, in Katrina, that's what happened, but as I said, they did not have the command and control structure to be able to do that. Under oil spill response, in law, there is federal preemption because the coordination of federal, uh, a coordination of oil spill responses on land is through EPA and on water is through the Coast Guard by law. So it wasn't an issue of was there a continuity of government, was there somebody there that could do it. That was not the issue. The issue is how do you coordinate it and, and, and create a unified command and unity of effort with the federal lead as opposed to a state and local lead and you're trying to support them. So getting the mission right and understanding where you're going is very important. Now, embedded in the legislation passed off after the Exxon Valdez was the notion that we have a responsible party. And if you have a responsible party, they are required to pay for the response, and the response plans that were submitted and approved by the government have to have them identify contractors that will come to the scene and clean up the oil. These are called Oil Spill Response Organizations, or OSROs. So in the passage of the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, following the Exxon Valdez, we made a public policy decision to privatize oil spill response. And we created a new private sector industry in this, company, in this country, oil spill response organizations. So that is what happened. Okay, BP was designated the responsible party, so was Transocean. Uh, and we established a unified command, and the way that doctrine is called for you have a Coast Guard federal on-scene coordinator, you have a state representative, and you have a representative of the responsible party, and you have a unified command. Use the incident command system, same as you would for a, a, a natural disaster response, and that's the way you execute it. I will tell you, and I'm not going to attribute why we got to where we were at, because I think you can, we need to talk about it moving forward. There was not a lot of general knowledge that that was the response structure, number one. So if you're looking, if you're a parish president of Louisiana or a county executive, in Mississippi, you're saying, why aren't you giving me the resources? Why am, why am I not running this? And the answer is the, the federal government supervises the responsible party. I spent more time in front of the press during this response trying to describe the tenets of the Oil Pollution Act and the, what we call the National Contingency Plan to a disbelieving public and a skeptical political apparatus. And that's where you start to have to understand what it is you're dealing with. And, and it was clear from the start that uh, in the absence of a fixed doctrine on how to coordinate across the departments, you can hear this clarion call again and again. If there's not a rebuttable presumption, and this is how we, we uh, uh, analyze a problem, classify the mission, assign the mission, and have supported supporting roles, then the, the political instincts will kick in and you'll try and do what you think you need to do at the time. It's not right or wrong, it just is. 
okay? And so what we started to see were one-offs, uh, things that, that were happening that I would call extra-doctrinal to the National Contingency Plan or extra-governmental. Uh, and a lot of this had to do with the size of the spill, and frankly, it had to do with the resources of BP. There are a few companies in the world that could have responded to the tasking that BP was provided, especially uh, the establishment of a $20 billion escrow fund for claims. And the fact that they blew right through their limits of liability and to this day have said, we will accept liability and we will continue to pay, uh, when a smaller company without the assets that BP had could have walked and that would have been the U.S. government holding the bag on how to move forward on that. So uh, as we were trying to fight three different venues, contain the well, the oil out on the ocean and what was coming ashore, we were also looking at the response that basically, I call it the political nullification of the response doctrine, folks, <laughs> where nobody could understand that a responsible party that was the entity responsible for the event could somehow be consequential in the response itself. That created cognitive dissonance in the mind of the public and our political leaders. Secondly, and I don't know how you solve this, uh, BP has a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. They have to make SEC filings. There are legal requirements of what they're supposed to do as a corporation. And there's always somebody out there that could infer that they were subordinating whatever requirements or responsibilities they would have in the spill to responsibilities to their shareholders. I don't know how you get through that. For the last 20 years since the Oil Pollution Act was, was uh, signed and put into law, we have executed oil spills under this doctrine. And they've been effective. And all the responsible parties know when it's over, there's going to be a reckoning. Civil penalties, criminal penalties, natural resources damage assessments, they will pay. Uh, but we have learned over the last 20 years to subordinate that and deal with the problem of the spill at the time. Uh, I would tell you this, though. <laughs> this is one of Alan's theorems coming out of this event. Uh, the political and social tolerance for a responsible party in that role is inversely proportional to the size of the spill. When it gets that bad, and especially you add on the, uh, the, the myriad of issues they're dealing with in the Gulf right now after the hurricanes, the loss of the barrier islands and everything else, uh, it really is hard for them to understand that you've got this company there that was responsible for the event that has to be consequential in the response. The second thing is the oil companies themselves in oil and exploration own the means of production. This is not a public good. Oil exploration is a private good that is carried out by the technology that's developed in the private sector. I had many, many conversations about why the Department of Defense wasn't brought in to solve this problem, why the Navy wasn't bringing the ROVs in. And I got asked at least on five occasions, believe it or not, over the course of this thing, why we didn't think about using a nuclear weapon on the well. Okay. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the technology that's used down there resides in the private sector. And added to the, co the complexity of this entire event was the fact there was no human access to the spill. It was 5,000 feet below the surface. And anything we knew about the bottom down there and the condition of the well, we knew from remote sensing, pressure gauges, and what the ROVs were able to tell us through video until we could actually get sensors down there. We were seeing the whole thing through a keyhole. And at any particular time, uh, between the oil recovery operations and the attempt to put the capping stacks on and the two relief wells that are being dug out there, at one time, within one mile of that well, we had 22 ROVs operating simultaneously in what the, in what the industry calls simultaneous operations. And we had 35 surface ships within about a mile and a half or two-mile radius. I've got a picture of a bridge wing on one of the boats, and you look out there, you cannot see water. And in the middle of all that, we're trying to do seismic testing of the formation to make sure the well's not doing something we don't know about. We're trying to test acoustically for methane gas bubbles. And every time we had to do that, we had to stop everything and let the, re let the research vessels go through. And where the oil came up, you couldn't put skimming and in situ burning equipment or use dispersants on it right there because that's where you were working. So by the time we got to the oil, it was already disaggregating into hundreds of thousands of patches of oil, which defied the basic parameters of the oil spill response planning and led that to be invalid as far as the amount of equipment we would need. So it was, it was an extraordinary issue. Uh, the turning point for me uh, was the 15th of June. Uh, I went to uh, Pensacola with the president. I was flying back on Air Force One. Uh, we were fighting this thing at all levels. Uh, one of the challenges I was provided was uh, 
the fact that in order to try and keep the economic vitality of the area, they're going and keep people in jobs. Uh, BP had employed thousands of vessels of opportunity and paid these folks to be part of the response. The problem is we had never done that before in this country, taken that many uh, voluntary uh, vessels and brought them in. The analogy that I've made to folks is very similar to the Minutemen at Concord before the Revolution. Getting back to our Coast Guard roots here. Um, the folks that showed up had passion, commitment, and resources. Uh, but some of them had a musket and some of them had a knife. But we had to form them up, we had to point them a direction, and we ultimately had to beat the British. Okay, our problem was command and control, communications, and surveillance, and be able to direct these vessels where we needed to go. Uh, that ended up being the final straw, at least for me, in something that I had to do, and I did this based on the knowledge that we learned from Haiti. And that day on the airplane, I told the president, I need to take control of the airspace. We had eight near-mid-air collisions. We had helicopters flying out to logistic, doing logistical support for the drilling and the oil spill recovery that was going on. Uh, we had spotter planes for in-situ burning. Uh, we had planes flying with sensors from NOAA, NASA, other uh, agencies that were involved. Uh, we had press uh, aircraft out there, and we had National Guard flying from the states. And it occurred to me that what we really needed is what worked in Haiti in a different type of a way. Uh, I called Norty Schwartz, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and I called uh, Mike Mullen. Uh, this is where uh, the extraordinary uh, uh, companionship and cooperation I got by being brought into the tank while not being a statutory member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff paid off big time. I was able to sort out the facts of what DOD could do or could not do for us, and it wasn't solving the spill. But it was using soup salad and Navy and Navy skimming equipment and those types of things that we could use and putting that all together. In the end, uh, we invoked the same protocol that we did in Haiti. Uh, the first Air Force stood up an air coordination center at Tyndall Air Force Base uh, in the old NORAD, uh, the, the CONAR Command Center, where we, we do the Continental Defense of North America, and the building next door because they just built a new command center. And it was extraordinary. I went there. It was filled with all the purple suitors. You know, that's what we call the joint force that we have right now. And it also included NOAA scientists, people from the Fish and Wildlife Service, U.S. Geological Service. We have people with ponytails. And it was very interesting. Uh, and those of you in the military will get a kick out of this. I, when I walked out, I said, this is not joint and purple. This is plaid. <laughs> but you know what? We need plaid because <laughs> plaid worked. Uh, we brought together all the ISR, the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance efforts. We brought the overhead imagery in. We, we were able to create a common operating picture. And then we created transparency, and we gave it away to the public. If I had something to do over again on the spill, I would have taken control of the airspace on the first day. And if I had known it going to New Orleans, I would have done it there. We know how to do this. We can do it very quickly. And uh, that's something we need to file it away. So, which raises the question, where do you file it? <laughs> now, I happen to be in all three of those incidents. Okay? But I'm retired now, folks. <laughs> uh, and there, there has to be a way where we can build standard operating procedures and doctrine, and then evolve that to an interagency operational planning and coordination function. I'm not going to say J35, again, the antibodies kick in. I have talked entirely about three domestic or international non-military incidents that cry out for planning and coordination across government. And I think that's what we need to take moving forward. You can talk about the eaches, as Mike Muller would say, you know, what about this case or that case? But I think the, 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 the overall arching challenge before us right now is to create the capability in this government to understand and critically examine an event, accurately determine what the problem really is that we're trying to solve, assign the mission to the proper lead, and have a lead-supporting uh, relationship. And I, I can go back and I can tell you, there was no doubt during Haiti there was a State Department, Secretary Clinton, Rajiv Shah, Susan Rice, U.S. Ambassador in support of a sovereign country down there. Everybody knew that, so, all right, we got it. Craig Fugate went over and he spent days at USAID trying to work out how to airlift that stuff. We all went together. The Lieutenant General Keene, it worked. Uh, how do you replicate it? How do you make it the rebuttable presumption so if there's a huge amount of political pressure when the events are unfolding, there's not the urge to just do something 
because the political sense would tell you we have to be, appear to be responsive and accountable, but do the right thing, but do the right thing. Uh, so let me add a couple other points here, and I'd be glad to take some questions. Uh, let me do, these are just some, uh, a series of things that I think we need to deal with that, are, that flow through the events as well. Uh, first of all, we will never have a large crisis response in this government again that will not involve public participation. The public expects to be involved, wants to be involved, and there will be a political price to pay, a communications and strategic uh, uh, engagement price to pay if we don't do this. And it's hard. It's really hard. During Hurricane Katrina, we had volunteers showing up, and if we didn't use them right away, uh, they went to Channel 4 or CNN or someplace, and they found an avenue to, say, to, to, to vent their frustration. But on the other hand, we had, we had vehicles coming into New Orleans, Somebody had painted on the side FEMA animal rescue or swooping up animals and leaving. And the majority of the dogs that came out of New Orleans were pit bulls, and a lot of those dogs were picked up went into dog fighting. So you got an issue of access, credentialing, certification of the folks that are involved in that. You need to do it, but there's got to be a way to think about that in involving volunteers. And we had the vessels of opportunity in the oil spill. Advanced certification training that people want to get involved. Everybody understands the price of admission to use your passion, resources, and commitment is certification access, and so we know and can manage what's going on as we move forward. There are safety and security issues associated with that. Uh, the second issue is transparency, and, this, and that's actually related. Uh, the public expects transparency. BP wasn't intentionally hiding video when they're trying to deal with containing a well. They don't think about that first. They should have. Every time somebody had to ask us or something, we went, oh, yeah, we'll get it for you. That created the impression uh, that there was an intent behind not making it public to begin with and obfuscation associated with that, and you have a credibility hole you're trying to dig yourself out of. Go transparent from the start. Whatever you can put out there, put out there. My guidance was, unless it was a safety or security issue, the media had access, and we still had problems because we had temporary flight restrictions where you couldn't go in for safety or security reasons. Uh, we had the threat of boom being either uh, vandalized or stolen. So we said you had to stay, you know, 50, 60 yards off the boom. Well, the minute we did that, the press interpreted that as they didn't, we didn't want them to see oil birds. And the answer was that was not the case. You can't give a parking ticket unless you have a no parking zone. In other words, you have to make it uh, a violation to mess with the boom. So we issued the order you can't mess with the boom. Well, that was interpreted as being a way to prevent the press from coming. Now. We need to deal with that ahead of time, and you need to deal with it moving forward. Uh, the third is we took our common operating picture, and we put it out on the web. <coughs> Nothing succeeds like just giving the information away. And ultimately, even BP who was very concerned about their ROV operators being subject to real-time public scrutiny while they were actually trying to control the arms, would somehow affect their performance, understood they had to make the video public, had to make the video public. And as part of that, at a certain point in the spill response, I said, we've got to stop the argument over the flow rate. And as a National Incident Commander, I stood up a flow rate technical group and ultimately took Marsha McNutt, who's head of the U.S. Geological Survey, and we put her in charge. And after that, everything that came out related to flow rate was a government estimate with some kind of an error rate attached to it. And you could argue about it or what, but these are the assumptions that went into it. This is what we think it is. As you know, we ended up right around 60,000 barrels a day. And that is the basis for the, uh, the response going forward right now. Uh, I don't know how long I've gone there, Ozzy. Are you about ready to go some Q&A there? Q&A, certainly. Okay. Uh, as you can see, uh, <laughs> I'm vested in this uh, concept of making government work better. I'm going to be speaking and writing about it over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, aside, aside from any talk about a Goldwater-Nichols-type solution in the interagency, the fact of the matter is, it's a priori based on the incidents we've had, been, had, had to be involved in the last four or five years that we have to do something better in federal government in this regard, and I'm glad to have that conversation. Thank you.
Okay, we'll go ahead and um, Admiral Allen says he can do the questions better than I can, so I'm not surprised. Uh, no, but um, I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll play traffic cops. So let's go ahead and we ask that you, um, we have microphones. If you please uh, raise your hand, I'll acknowledge you, state your name and your affiliation if you have one, and then present your question, not your statement, please, to Admiral Allen. Uh, who wants to go first? A gentleman in the back with the red tie, please. Thank you, sir. Dave McIntyre, uh, National Graduate School. Could you talk a second about the concept of risk management? Because this concept is, uh, is being asked to drive uh, an awful, awful lot of things in the Department of Homeland Security now, funding and planning and so forth. And yet everything you've talked about seems to me like you were, sent, you were thrown in like the fire brigade when the risk sort of uh, construct uh, failed. So is this something you think about, you thought about in the Coast Guard? Are we just immature? What's going on in this area of risk? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, we haven't found out, this is world according to Alan now, <laughs> um, we haven't figured out a way in this government and this country to have a dispassionate discussion on risk without it becoming emotional and getting caught up in uh, political points of view and so forth. And the fact of the matter is we make risk decisions every day. There's an opportunity cost to every airplane we launch. There's an opportunity cost to every small boat we launch. There's an embedded risk calculation going on in everybody's mind. Uh, but when you try and make that explicit and have that conversation, it morphs. And it's no longer a, a, a very dispassionate conversation about how we want to uh, uh, weigh the relative risk of al allocating resources here or there. Uh, you know, all of a sudden there's attribution assigned to it. Uh, and it was very interesting. A while back I was going to give a talk as comment on the Coast Guard on, on the budget. And the budget is the ultimate risk document. Because as you go through the process and your budget's winnowed down, as it, you know, as it leaves, your, leaves, leaves the particular agency, everybody gets a crack at it, OMB and everybody else. Well, uh, part of that process is making a calculation on the risk associated with it. I was always of the opinion that that ought to be a public conversation. And if you look at the, uh, some of the budget discussions that are going to have to be taking place right now, given the size of the deficit, uh, you can talk about X percent cut. You can talk about X thousands of people. But the real implications of that, and when you're producing the effect, is ultimately going to be a risk trade-off uh, that program managers and operational commanders and people that are actually applying resources to mission effect out there have to make. Uh, and where you stand on the deficit, in my view, is less important about how much, uh, than how much you want to have a conversation about the risks that's entailed at the funding levels you're actually going to decide. And I think at the very highest, most strategic level, uh, that's where we really need to be talking about risk. And was that responsive? Or? Okay, next question. Uh, Jameson, you want to go ahead? Admiral, you talked about unity of effort and unity of command. Um, in interagency efforts, it makes a lot of sense. But when we start talking about bringing the private sector in, um, such as Fugate is looking at with whole of community efforts, um, there's a need to obtain unity of effort perhaps without unity of command. Where are That's the exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. Where are, the <laughs> where are the best opportunities for enhancing our ability yep. to obtain unity of effort without a unity of command? Yeah, I'm right sorry. Now? I should have been more explicit. Uh, my, my proposition is we have to find a way to achieve unity of effort because you won't have unity of command outside the monolithic statutory relationships in Title X. That's, that's exactly my premise. I'll give you the best example. Uh, I had, a, had the opportunity a few weeks ago to, to meet with uh, Kathy Ganey, uh, the J4 and the Joint Staff. Um, she has what she calls a conference of logistics directors, a cold conference. Um, they had an extraordinary meeting down in, um, in Richmond uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, they brought in all the fours, uh, but they also brought in all the fours from the uh, combatant commanders, uh, but they also brought in FEMA, Homeland Security. Uh, they brought in Canada, Australia, and the UK. And they started talking about not only interagency and joint logistics, but how you move to the private sector, because if you think about it, especially when the military is involved, if you don't have a force-on-force -force issue, and you're not doing a, uh, you know, a non-combatant evacuation or something like that, the effect you're trying to achieve is logistics. And if you look at uh, how Transcom has evolved over the years, it, it is inseparable from the private sector. So when you talk about unity of effort and the private sector, I, I, there is no better example in my mind than the creation of a common operating doctrine and a common operating picture for joint interagency and intersector 
logistics. Next. Okay, how about the gentleman in the blue shirt right here? Your name and affiliation, please. Admiral Gary Gentile with Platts. Um, Rex Tillerson, the uh, CEO of ExxonMobil, um, made some comments where he talked about the decision-making that, that happened in, in your uh, command there. And he said that basically what, what the command did was go from the lowest risk, lowest payoff options and move step-by-step until it found you know, the highest risk, highest payoff option that eventually worked to cap the well. And he suggested that there were other risk management um, uh, models that industry uses. For instance, he said every time ExxonMobil digs a well, that might have gotten to that solution a lot quicker. Do you think he has a point there? And is there anything to learn from those uh, private models? Well, sure he has a point. Uh, now, knowing now the sequence of events, we could come back and said, cut out steps five through seven and go to that. Yeah. Uh, I could subscribe to that myself. Uh, actually, I've talked to Rex on a couple of occasions. I called him a couple of times because I needed some, in, in nautical terminology, you need some triangulation on what you're hearing and all that sort of thing. Uh, the dynamic that was playing out in the meetings, and I didn't discuss this earlier, but this is a good time to bring it up. One of the ways that we were able to politically establish the relevancy of the government in a response where the means of production was owned by the private sector was through Secretary Chu's science team that got sent to Houston uh, to try and understand what BP was proposing. These are people from the national labs. In fact, a key player was Tom Hunter, who, who led the Sandia lab. He was down there as a key player, Marsha McNutt. Uh, and what they were trying to do is understand what BP was proposing because BP would submit a proposal that had to be approved by the federal on-scene coordinator or we had to direct a removal action. And we were doing that under legal authority, okay? So we had the science team down there headed by Secretary Chu. Secretary Salazar was involved in daily briefings and we were walking through. Now they were concerned with risk mitigation, okay? BP was concerned with capping the well, sealing the well. In between there, there was a dialectic to play it out, and I think that's the proper term, <coughs> uh, regarding what was the proper pace to move at and how do you ensure the risk was being addressed. We were overwhelmingly concerned about the condition of the well bore and the casing. We did not know if it had been damaged in the event, and what we did not want was some kind of a, a fracture into the formation where there would be free communication between the reservoir and the hydrocarbons would work their way to the seafloor and they would be released until the pressure equalized. That was number one. Do not let that happen under any condition. And number two, do no damage to the wellbore or the casing with the pressure limits as far as the mud that was being pumped down and everything else. Now that might lead you to a different set of outcomes and sequences than you would do if you were applying a risk calculation in a pure private sector sense in oil and gas exploration. So I would tell you what Rex said was not mutually exclusive from what we did. But if you know after the fact you can remove three steps and you have to do it again, you do that. And the real issue is when you cut the riser pipe and when you unbolted the stub that was left with the flange, which then led you to be able to put the capping stack on. And the real answer moving forward, and this is lessons learned, is to create uh, interoperating pieces there where this can happen very, very quickly, hydrostatic releases and things like that where you can do that more quickly. But, but again, they never envisioned there would ever be a riser pipe coming from a wellhead to the surface because they produce oil on the bottom in the Gulf of Mexico and they bring it back to shore by pipelines. So we had to create an oil recovery system uh, that basically did not exist before then and we were dealing with a riser pipe uh, that was 5,000 feet long, bent over, laying on the sea floor, so we weren't sure how much that was impeding the flow. Uh, we're honored to have uh, Senator Warner. Sir, you have a question? Nice to see you again, Skipper. Uh, as one who spent his lifetime flapping jaws for a living, I'd give you an A for tonight's performance. I really would. <laughs> but I want to go back to your wonderful use of metaphors. Uh, that group of volunteers that liberated America with their knives and their pistols <laughs> and so forth. And today, I want to talk about the subject of first responders. Mm -hmm. America is becoming more and more reliant on the concept of first responders. Now, the obvious is the National Guard, Coast Guard, structured with command and control groups. But it goes right down to my 
communities down in Virginia where the rural fire department is a volunteer fire department. And yeah, there's some command and control, but it's in local politics and all kinds of things. <laughs> so we, that's what you have to deal with in some of these situations where the guard or coast guard or whatever the case may be comes in. First, how do we give them the proper recognition and, and sort of give them the patriotic recognition that they desire? And secondly, how do you structure uh, to involve them and make them an integral part of whatever the big top organizers are doing? Thank you. Yeah, Senator, a great comment and a great question. Uh, first of all, in the normal routine of uh, dealing with emergencies in this country, local resources are adequate. Uh, when we start to talk about crises, it's when you've started to exceed the, 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 the resources and even maybe the, the authorities and capabilities of the local governments to respond, how you start raising that echelon of response up and how do you do that most effectively uh, for the government. And as you, as you well stated, most of the uh, emergency services and firefighting around this country, a large amount of it is done by, by volunteers. I think what we need to do is we need to have a way to understand what they do, and even while they're volunteers, and I think there's, this is already under, uh, underway, is professionalize them. It gets back to the certification, security, and the access that I talked about for the animal rescuers in New Orleans. I think we need to figure out a way to have them be able to integrate it, and that's done through the National Incident Management System, or, and at the local level we call the Incident Command System. It's doctrine. When you go in, you know exactly what the rules and responsibilities are. Uh, proliferating that response doctrine across the country, which is happening right now, is I think what we need to do. At the larger level, and I'll, as, as a metaphor, I'll deal with the Title 32 call-up of National Guard and how you integrate them to achieve unity of, of effort. Because right now there's an issue about unity of command on who they're called up and where they work for the governor or, or the federal government. Uh, following Hurricane Katrina, there was legislation passed that created something called a Council of Governors. They first met back in February when I was still the Commandant. And they took on the very significant challenge of trying to create unity of effort uh, between active duty Title 10 and Reserve Component Forces and Title 32 forces responding to the same event. Uh, they had a meeting last July in Boston, and they had a meeting just a, a week or so ago here in Washington on, the no on November 8th. Uh, Secretary Paul Stockton's involved in this, uh, Sandy Winnefeld at U.S. Northern Command, Gene Renouart, uh, I mean, uh, Gene Renouart's successor, Craig Fugate and others, Bob Papp, the Commandant on the Coast Guard. Uh, what they are coming up with is a concept, and I think it's a great concept, to certify dual-headed joint task force commanders that don't uh, subjugate uh, authority and unity of command to another command, but can exercise it simultaneously from the same command post. Now, this is still a work in progress. It's still being discussed. But the early conversations with all the governors, and the, and the Council of Governors, by the way, is six Republican and six uh, Democratic governors together, chaired by uh, Governor Gregoire and the Governor of Vermont, and I'm having a senior moment right now. But those, those two are the, the, the current chairs of the Council of Governors. Uh, they have made a commitment to solve this problem moving forward. This is another step. This is another brick in the doctrinal foundation on how you classify these events, establish support and supporting roles, and achieve better effectiveness in government. I think it's a great initiative. I applaud the leadership of Sandy Winnefeld out of Northcom to kind of push this thing through and the leadership of Paul Stockton in the Department of Defense moving forward. But, Senator, that's the type of stuff I think we have to think about. Okay, uh, how many que are there other questions out there? Okay, let's, um, let's go to two. If you answer shorter. State, <laughs> well, we'll state your um, – we'll, we'll go with two questions. We'll ask each individual uh, – we'll go here and here. State your question, and Admiral, you can kind of pick and choose which ones you want to answer, and that will be the last questions for the evening. So, General, right here in the, in the back in the middle and up here in the front. Carl McNair from CSC. Sir, you've really laid out some very illuminating information for us here tonight and the way you threaded the three national and international incidents together. And I know that there's many, many think tanks around town and around the world studying these and with the comparative solutions downstream. There's one piece that I've missed, and, and, and maybe you covered it earlier, and that is the media and the communications the disinformation and the misinformation, and will there be any effort to try to bring the media aboard? Now, the military, I come from the Defense Department, 50 years thereof, of embedded reporting perhaps, or reporting pools, or something else that might assist us in not everybody thinking that the CEO of BP is a bad guy and that the people of New Orleans or Louisiana are, are not cooperating or supporting. How about 
the media thrust and not censoring it, but getting their full support and truth and lending. I'm in total agreement with it. Let me hear the other one. I'll answer both at the same time. <laughs> Hi, G. <laughs> Very different question. You've done a terrific job of laying out the, uh, sketching the outline of, of the next two years of courses on unity of effort in responding to a crisis. Have you thought about, and can you talk for a minute about, unity of prevention? Now, you can't prevent hurricanes and, and earthquakes, but right. you can prevent yeah. uh, Happy to talk attacks about that. and uh, lo shutting down Long Beach by mines or driving ships into. Yeah. I'll talk about yours, and I'll lead back to the media question. How's that? Is that well, all right. Gene, uh, I think the answer is resiliency. And resiliency has a pre and a post component to it. Uh, resilient communities, resilient governments do things ahead of time we call preparedness. But the fact that they are resilient allows them to be more effective in their response afterwards. And I'd like to see uh, the term resiliency kind of move across all of that and to include, and I mentioned it earlier, I didn't get into a lot of detail, the, uh, the progression between response and long-term recovery. Uh, you can solve some of these problems up front by trying to understand how you prepare and get ready for it. Prevent. And prevent it. Yeah, prevention, preparedness, and then uh, re uh, response recovery. Across all of that, what you want to create is resilient governments, resilient communities. That's, 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 where, I, that's where I'm headed. I'll, I'll give you a good example, and you all remember this. It was so painful. Uh, in Hurricane Katrina, uh, we were just trying to put people wherever we could, and in the process of just trying to deal with their daily needs, we populated hundreds of thousands of people into hotels under emergency housing, combination with FEMA, uh, Red Cross, and others, trying to move them out of those hotel rooms under those conditions <laughs> and move to long-term housing when it was going to be years before that housing stock would re be rebuilt in New Orleans. We did not have a way forward in the federal government how to move from response to recovery, and emergency sheltering is probably the best example of how you carry that through. You can do something ahead of time about it, you can do something when the event occurs, but you need to have a long-term plan on how you're going to move even, even beyond that. And I think uh, we're going to be learning that as far as the oil spill response, too. Uh, regarding the media, we did all that. <laughs> uh, every time I went out to the oil rigs, oil rigs I took a, an embed with me, embedded reporter. Uh, I took Katie Couric. I took Ann Thompson from NBC News. Uh, we had pool reporters out when we were, and, and when we got to a certain point, we went live with all the video feeds. And I basically mandated transparency. Here's where it starts to break down. You have a second or third tier contractor out there with a guy that's running a work gang trying to get oil cleaned up off the beaches. You know, he's never had public affairs training like our officers had. And somebody comes up and they want one of his people to be interviewed by the press, and he goes, no way. That's not a statement of my policy as a national incident commander. That's an individual reacting to a situation he's never been put in. And it finally got to the point where I was telling the press, tell me when, where, how, and I'll go back and fix it. But one of the problems we had in this entire response, especially when we're working with the media and transparency, and I had this conversation with Tony Hayward and Bob Dudley as well, you can't outsource corporate values, empathy, and compassion to a second or third party contractor. You can meet your legal requirement to set up a claims process because you're supposed to do that. But if you hire a claims adjuster contract, what you're going to forget is the individual transactions as seen through the eyes of the public and their evaluation of the effectiveness of the response are going to be measured on how they were treated. That, in turn, plays right into how they react with the media and where the media goes for the story. So the more effective you are in dealing with the response itself, you're going to you do a better job of informing the public. In the long run, though, and this goes back before uh, Katrina, uh, the oil spill, or Haiti, or anything else. This is just my theory. If you look at social media, you look at the Internet, look at the 24-hour news cycle, frankly, we don't control any of that, and there's no barrier to entry. The responsibility for the truth, the veracity, and the fidelity of information, any information on the web rests with the reader. And I sat down with my people from time to time because they're all upset and angry when this stuff happens. And I said, you gotta get, you got to get through all the steps of web grieving here. You've got to get angry. You gotta, you know. In the long run, I decided the way you deal with this, I actually learned this from John Holdren, the science and technology advisor to the president. He gave a, 
a speech on climate change a year ago that was a phenomenal speech. He can explain this better than anybody, folks. But at the end, he looked at everybody in the audience. He says, there are three ways to deal with climate change. You can suffer, you can adapt, or you can manage. And I would tell you, in dealing with the media, the social media, the Internet, and everything else, you have three strategies. You can suffer, you can adapt, or you can manage. So Allen's theory, and this Allen's theory, is based on uh, uh, that great uh, uh, military doctrinist, Waldo. Where's Waldo? If you put your information out there and you're transparent, enough of it's out there, they become Waldo. Where's Waldo? And if it's, if it's wrong information, or there's a malintent or untoward intent, you will minimize the impact of that because they just cannot be seen with the transparency and the volume of information you're providing. So Alan's theory is where's Waldo? Well, on behalf of the uh, CSIS Energy Programs and the Counterterrorism Homeland Security Program, we want to thank you. We want to thank our sponsors, LSU and uh, the Pennington Foundation, and most importantly, Admiral Allen. Thank you very much for coming here tonight. A round of applause. <laughs>